Cynthia, thanks. Well, we're uh, coming towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We, this is the fourth last message um, in this Gospel that we've been in for last year and this year. And of course, that means we're coming to the cross, which is the central event uh, and, um, of this morning's text and of where Matthew is heading his Gospel. So let me read it to you, Matthew chapter 27. This morning we're in verses 27 to 44, and, um, and then we'll unpack it. Matthew 27, verse 27 says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they'd crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said but he can't save himself. If he's the, king of, he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Let's, let's pray. Loving God. This is holy ground in this material as we read of your death. We normally read passages like this on Easter Sunday, but here we are in October reading it in line with our series in Matthew. Lord, we thank you for what happened in this story and we pray that you would arrest each of us and flood each of us with gratefulness and grace and and a deep, deep understanding and appreciation for what is happening here for the sake of humanity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, history is filled with courageous pioneers. In today's world, many of them are recast as villains or colonisers. Of course, some of them we have learned were not particularly savoury characters and we probably wouldn't want them to sit at the family meal table. But others were and still are great heroes and cannot be judged by modern standards. There are many names of people who have gone before us and charted a new course. Some of them that came to mind uh, for me were Florence Nightingale, 
in modern nursing. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks or Nelson Mandela or Doug Nichols in the cause of human rights and racial equality. The original Polynesian and Melanesian sailors who charted courses across the whole Pacific Ocean from the east coast of Australia to the west coast of the Americas over a thousand years ago and they could read, I don't know how they did it, we can only marvel at the way that they navigated through the winds and the waves and the stars and were able to paddle little canoes across vast oceans. Or Captain James Cook in his famous voyage, or Nicholas Bourdain and Matthew Flinders who circumnavigated the Australian mainland. But let me focus on one pioneer this morning. Caroline Chisholm was a devout Christian and helped my immigrants and Australian immigration in the 19th century. She was honoured, some of us older ones will remember, by appearing on the Australian $5 note. That was the old one that used to burn and tear. Um, modern young people don't understand. They think notes are indestructible, but um, that, was, that was her. She was honoured by appearing on the $5 note for many years. For 30 years, Caroline Chisholm worked uh, to assist single women and families to migrate and settle in Australia. Often we don't know much about these heroes who appear on our, on our coins and uh, notes. She had to contend with the primitive conditions of colonial society and bitter religious controversy. She was a devout Catholic and endured a lot of opposition from Protestants and the same happened on the other side. She was stifled by a lack of material resources but she had some great personal assets. She had energy, human sympathy, administrative ability of a very high order, personal charm, dignity, and a husband who unobstructively was devoted to her work. And she had undying faith in a cause to which she had unselfishly so put her hand. One of her most famous achievements you might not know about was in convincing the Victorian government to build shelter sheds in 1855. The 10 sheds, or shakedowns as they were called, were established along the road from Melbourne to Bendigo for vulnerable people who were walking to the goldfields. The first one was in Essendon. The second one was in the out, outer country town called Keylor. And on it went up to Bendigo, a day's walk each, so that there would be shelter and it would be safer for people and families who were walking up to the goldfields. That's the way she thought. She had originally wanted 16, but the government forced her down to 10 sheds and she travelled to each of them up and down what we now call the, call the highway to inspect them and make sure that they were built properly. She also paved the way in her example for many other Christian women and devoted Christian people to respond to other charitable needs that were before them in their own local context, in thus in the service of the flourishing of their own local community, particularly amongst the needy. She's a great Australian hero. Well, our text this morning is another story of an explorer and pioneer of a different sort and the legacy that he left through the path that he walked. A man who modelled a different set of values and paved a new way for humanity. Previous to his life, there was a chasm and no one could figure out how to cross it. It was a massive chasm. A void between this world and its unjust and corrupt power systems and its sin that separated humanity from the unity and relationship with the Creator. Injustice and evil that kept people in bondage and darkness. 
This is why when this pioneer came, he announced that he was the light. This is what he said to those in darkness. He said, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And this is what he said his mission was in line with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 of what he would inaugurate. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus was a pioneer who paved the way, so much so that after he ascended, his movement wasn't called Christianity, it was called the way. This is how Luke recorded Jesus' followers when Saul, who became Paul, was trying to murder them and hunt them down. This is in Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breaking out with murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And in our text this morning, we see the full devastating way that Jesus was prepared to travel so that a way might be made across the chasm between God and humanity. A bridge, if you like, across a vast gorge that no one had been able to pioneer a way across. We, entered, we ended our message two weeks ago with the shambolic trial and betraying denials from even Jesus' closest friends. We left Jesus completely alone and thrown to the wolves. This is how verse 26 summarised everything where we've left the scene. He, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to the crowd. But he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. That's where our narrative stopped two weeks ago. And now in this passage, the brutality increases. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and they put on a scarlet robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on, the head again, on his head again and again. And after they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. The Praetorium was Pilate's official headquarters. It was a fortress staffed by his guard, a whole company or a battalion, probably 120 to 200 soldiers. And as can happen with mobs, whether sanctioned or rogue, this battalion taunted the innocent man like a cat might taunt a mouse. In Roman times, at this stage of proceedings, condemned criminals were subjected to cruel games and even mocked by having costumes put on them. Here, in this scene, they dressed Jesus in fancy dress. They beat him and they mocked him. And remember what the scriptures said would happen to the anointed. Now this is a long text for normally to be quoted. It's a chapter of Isaiah. But this is what Isaiah said would happen to the Lord's anointed. And it's just worth listening to what was prophesied 
800 years earlier. Isaiah 52 verses 13 through to 53, 12. This is what Isaiah said 800 years earlier of what now unfolds in our scene. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life as a sin offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Incredible insight and accuracy from Isaiah some 800 years earlier. Isaiah predicted what was coming and Jesus himself had predicted what was coming. For example, in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus said this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And Matthew 17, the next chapter, says this. When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. 
And finally, in Matthew 20, we've covered all this material in previous weeks. This is what happened. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So what was foretold by Isaiah and Jesus now unfolds in our text. The theme for this cruel game that the soldiers played out as a pantomime on the condemned man might have been called the king of Israel. They dressed him as a condemned king. They put a scarlet robe on him. Mark and John say purple. But we know from 2,000 years ago, colours were not as bold as they are today, so it could have been either. Whatever was nearby, they might have grabbed. Or we don't know whether it was originally purple, but made scarlet from the amount of blood that flowed on it. Either way, a kingly robe was put on him in this mockery pantomime. And then they needed a crown for the king, so they made up a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. And they gave him a staff on his right hand because every king in a pantomime needs a staff. And they knelt before him like in a pantomime and mocked him as king of the Jews. And then to prove that mockery was fully underway, they did what you never would do to a real king. They spat on him. And then they took the staff from his right hand and bashed him with it on the head, as Matthew records again and again. And then when they'd enjoyed enough foolish mockery and their victim was somehow still alive, they led him away to death by crucifixion. Seriously weakened, the soldiers must have wondered if they'd gone too far in that moment. Their mocked king was so weakened in his bloodied and wounded state that he struggled to elevate the crossbar of his crucifix to carry it to Golgotha. Much like a modern railway sleeper that we might know, these large, solid, splintered pieces of wood probably weighed 25 kilograms or more. Now that Jesus, a hardened traveller and carpenter, could not lift that shows us his condition, which will also likely lead soon to his quicker death than usual. It's likely that he was already suffering at this stage, commentators say, from internal organ damage, from the severe beating that the soldiers would have dealt out to him because they could see that the day's timetable was fast coming to an end and they needed to have this achieved by dusk on the Friday. So they selected a volunteer to hurry things up. Verse 32 says, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Cyrene was a region in North Africa, modern-day Libya. That's where Simon was from. And it had a large Jewish population. And so the presence of someone like Simon from Cyrene, being in Jerusalem for the Passover, is completely consistent. Although given the veneration attributed to this scene from the faithful and a natural desire to credit someone like Simon so positively for carrying our Lord's cross it's very unlikely that he volunteered for this task. No one wanted to get under the eye of a Roman soldier in a crucifixion. Luke gives us a little more detail. Luke says this, 
As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country. And they put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And Mark always gets to the point. Mark says this, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And verse 33 tells us they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The transliteration from the Aramaic means the skull, as Matthew records, but it also may have been given this name because it was the site of executions or it had a number of tombs there or even because the site in some way did resemble a skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused it, verse 34. Here we see even more mockery continuing. The wine that they offered Jesus was not wine, pure and simple alcohol to moderate some of the pain. It was mixed with gall, a bitter herb that could even be poisonous. Simon Wilkins from Talbot School of Theology at Biola says this about the crucifixion. He says, Crucifixion was widely practised by the Romans and the earliest story in Josephus mentions thousands of people crucified in first century Palestine, mostly during rebellions against Rome. There are stories of Roman soldiers cruelly playing with different postures for crucified victims through the use of nails and a crossbar though the use of nails and a crossbar appear to have been common. Modern medical explanations for the cause of death on a cross have focused on asphyxiation or shock. Crucifixion was widely seen to be the worst form of execution due to the excruciating pain and public shame. Hanging suspended by one's arms eventually caused great difficulty in breathing, which could be alleviated only by pushing up one's feet to take the weight off the arms. But that motion itself would cause severe pain in the feet, arms, legs and back, causing the exhausted victim to slump down again, only to be unable to breathe once more. Eventually the victim would succumb to suffocation if he had not died as a result of the cumulative effect of the physical trauma inflicted on him already. Matthew records Jesus' crucifixion itself simply in the past tense. In verse 35, he says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Not only does the mockery continue after his death, but this is a clear reference by Matthew to Psalm 22:18, which says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment." You may have noticed on the way through our tour of Matthew that he often referred to Psalm 22 through this account. And the educated Jewish reader of the day who Matthew was writing for would have noted this was to fulfil the psalm. Matthew will return to Psalm 22 shortly, as we will see this morning. Above Jesus' head had been placed a sign. Verse 37 describes it. Above his head they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Often a sign was placed above the crucifixion victim's head as a deterrent to any who would come against Rome. Verse 38 continues the mockery and the derision that Jesus suffered. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
those who hurled, passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Two, cru- two criminals who were on his left and right, fulfilling Isaiah 53:12, which said, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. According to Matthew, the highest levels of Israelite establishment mocked and derided him. Chief priests, scribes and elders took turns in mocking him. They literally fulfilled the words. I said we were coming back to Psalm 22. They literally fulfilled the words of Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Fulfilled. John Stott once said, Only one act of pure love, unsullied by the taint of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world. Namely, the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. Musical composer Jean-Jacques Rousseau observed, if Socrates, who died from poisoning, died like a philosopher, Jesus Christ died like a god. John Newton, who was originally a slave trader, wrote this verse, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Dr. Eric Frogenberg was a veteran missionary to India. He was a great storyteller, well known, and he could vividly describe the scenes from his 50 plus years of service cross-culturally. One day someone asked him, what was the most difficult problem that he ever encountered in his service? Without hesitation, he answered, it was when my body would grow tired and my heart cold before the Lord. When that happened, I knew I was too busy. I also knew that it was time to slip away for prayer. So I would take my Bible and go off to the hills alone I'd open up my Bible and read Matthew chapter 27 and I would wrap my arms around the Lord who died on the cross and what he went through on that cross. And then I'd be ready to get back to work. There's no guilt for us this morning, friends. It was achieved by our Lord. This is a passage of utmost grace, 
so that we now call it Good Friday. It's always seemed abhorrent to me that we call it Good Friday because there's nothing good about it and yet there is everything good about it. This is the day that a bridge was laid from the chasm that stopped humans being able to connect with God. A way was made. The previous endeavours through Israel and the law were insufficient and were failures and were were not enough. This is what it came to, that the God of heaven and earth would send his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. This is the gospel and this is one of the core texts in the Bible that describes what was achieved. This is a message of grace. We go with light hearts. We, of course, have heavy hearts with material like this because it's so heavy, but we know what was achieved. We know that our Lord is to be vindicated in coming weeks. We know that he will resurrect. We know that he will ascend. We know that he is in glory and working amongst us by his Spirit. But here this morning we see the cost and the full weight of what he bore for you and me. Let us pray. Loving God, it is a heavy weight to read a passage like this and to realise what you went through. A sinless, perfect life marked by a commitment to love and justice. And yet this is what happened. Yet we know in the midst of that, Lord, good will come. We know in the midst of that, Lord, you do win this victory. This is a story of victory. So, Lord, as we reflect on this and as we go into this week, let us also reflect with that famous missionary, Dr. Freigenberg, who knew when he got weary it was time to go to Matthew 27. It's time to get in touch again with what you did for us that we might then go into the world as followers of your way to act with love and justice, mercy and compassion with grace itself on our family, on our neighbours, on our friends, in our community. Let us go into the world carrying that message and carrying that life that you gave to us. You are for us. And whoever believes in you will have eternal life. We pray that in Jesus' name.